0: Annalise Lord shares her experience. I was called in by my son's Christian school for him not attending and skipping devotions in the mornings. When I asked my son about it, he defended himself. But, Mom, I have been skipping for months now, and many of the teachers saw, and none of them said anything to me. His mom replied, Because no one said anything to you, you think what you were doing is right? Yes, was his stupid response. They are the teacher's. They should have said something. What about you? You don't think what you were doing was wrong, his mom replied. It's not a big deal, mom. It's a small rule. Annalise observes, that's where all of our problems begin, small. Then we allow them to grow bigger because no one bothered or cared enough to say something. Then we lose control and blame is cast elsewhere. Don't wait for life to tell you or show you that what you are doing isn't right. Life has its own painful but incredibly effective ways to get its message across. Because no one bothered to tell you you were wrong, that doesn't mean it's right. Knowing the difference between right and wrong is power. Doing the right thing increases your power and strengthens your life. My friends, in life, we often struggle with not only doing what is right, but even more basic, determining what is right and wrong. In our world of moral relativity and justification of sin, our sense of right and wrong is often clouded. Like the sun in the story, our response for doing wrong is, no one told me it was wrong, even though I knew it was. As we continue our sermon series, Voyager, studying the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, as recounted in the inspired scriptures, We want to take a look at this issue of right and wrong and give four guiding biblical principles for how to determine what is right and wrong and in the process do what is right for the glory of God and as our witness to the world. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 verses 1 to 35 is what we'll be studying. i read now verses 1 and 2 of Acts chapter 15. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. These verses tell us that apparently there were Jewish Christians who came to Antioch in Syria, where Paul and Barnabas were ministering, and claimed that Christians had to follow the Jewish Mosaic laws, such as circumcision, in order for them to be saved. In other words, Gentiles had to adopt Jewish practices before they could truly become saved as Christians. This teaching directly contradicts the sufficiency of Jesus' death alone to save us and is a form of work salvation. Now, you may ask why these Jewish Christians would advocate for this. All of you remember, Jesus, his apostles, and the earliest converts were all Jewish. And therefore, in the earliest days of the church, it was mostly an ethnically Jewish church. Perhaps some of the Jewish converts may have found it hard to disengage from certain Jewish practices, like the dietary laws, even after having placed their trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And now, with the Gentiles or the non-Jews becoming Christians, and not practicing Jewish cultural customs. Perhaps it was too much of a demographic and cultural change in the church that they wanted to keep some of the cultural and ethnic identity of the church they had known and were a part of. So they may have misinterpreted verses like Genesis chapter 17, verse 14, or Exodus chapter 12, verses 48 to 49, which speaks of the need for circumcision to be part of the Jewish community and wrongly applied it to the church which is distinct from the nation of Israel. Whatever their motivation was, it was a theological issue that was of great importance and needed to be resolved because it dealt with how one is saved. We're told in verse 2 that Paul and Barnabas pushed back against this teaching, but it resulted in a great conflict in the church at Antioch. And so the Christians in Antioch decided to throw this question to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem the de facto seat of spiritual authority for the early church. Paul and Barnabas were sent out with other men from the church to go to Jerusalem to ensure that what was presented before the apostles and elders was truthful and accurate. I read now verses 3 to 6. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren." And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. These verses tell us, that as this delegation passed through Gentile and Sumerian lands on their way to Jerusalem, they told the Christians in these Gentile lands of what had happened on their first missionary journey in Cyprus and Asia Minor. And the knowledge of so many Gentiles coming to faith in Christ in other parts of the Roman world without having to practice Jewish customs brought joy to these Gentile Christians. When the delegation arrived in Jerusalem, the church and her leadership team welcomed them, and listened to what they had to present. However, there were some Christians in Jerusalem who were Pharisees and held in high esteem the Mosaic laws, who opposed what Paul and Barnabas were presenting, and countered that Gentile Christians must follow Jewish Mosaic laws, like circumcision, to be Christians. To put it in our context, it's like if you were a Chinese Christian and you tell your Filipino friends, in order to be a Christian— you must wear red and eat fish during Chinese New Year. Or if you are a Filipino Christian and you tell your Chinese friends, in order to be a Christian, you must practice pagmamano whenever you meet someone elderly. So who is right and who is wrong? This theological issue is what the Jerusalem Council would deliberate and discuss, and how they tackle this issue of who and what is right and wrong gives us some biblical principles for how we can do the same thing when we come across a situation where we have to discern what is right and what is wrong. Although contextually, the issue is theological, how the Jerusalem Council resolved this issue has great practical application to our Christian lives. Let's now see four guiding biblical principles to help us discern what is right and wrong. Now look with me at verses 7 to 11. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Presumably, after both sides had presented their arguments, Peter, one of the apostles and a leader in the church of Jerusalem, stood up and spoke. He recounted how God had chosen him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles like to the Gentile Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. He also reminded them, But when they responded to the gospel message by placing their trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit came and indwelt them, confirming that the Gentiles were Christians without them having to start practicing or continuing to practice Jewish customs. In fact, Peter mentioned there was the same thing that had happened to the Jewish converts at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit first came upon people and established the church without any extra practices needed. So, Peter argued, why should we add to the gospel message for the Gentiles by putting this extra requirement of following the Mosaic laws as a condition for salvation when it was such a burden historically for the Jewish people themselves? Peter was clearly advocating for the fact that Jew and Gentile were saved in the same manner salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone without adding any other conditions. This is the gospel message by which all of us are saved. I read now verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. After Peter spoke, Barnabas, as a respected member of the church in Jerusalem, and Paul described what had happened in their missionary journey to Cyprus and Asia Minor. They spoke of how God miraculously saved many Gentiles through Jesus, concrete evidence that they didn't have to first engage in Jewish practices and customs. What you have happening at this council meeting is that Peter, Barnabas, and Paul were laying out the facts of the argument. They shared what had actually happened and what they all witnessed, the Holy Spirit coming upon Gentile Christians without the need for circumcision or practicing Jewish customs. And from what they did, we can draw out our first biblical principle for how to discern what is right and wrong. Number one, be guided by the facts. Be guided by the facts. You see, when people are arguing about what is right or wrong, often it is clouded in justification. Emotions come into the picture. Personalities, voice tones, your preference, one's family history and culture, bias, and likability all come into play Selective and selective memories are presented. Non-sequiturs and logical fallacy arguments are brought into the argument, and it all gets messy and convoluted. And what is lost in the argument are the basic facts. It's like if you're arguing whether the steak is overcooked or not, and you say something like, well, I know it's overcooked because you are generally a terrible cook and you are ugly and middle-aged. The fact of whether the steak is overcooked or not is now no longer the issue, but your reputation as a cook is brought into the argument, and your looks and age are now an issue. I hope you see my point. Peter, Paul, and Barnabas all presented the facts that could not be debated, so we too must be guided by the facts and simply argue the facts, the cold hard facts, not all the periphery issues. And we see this done by the Jerusalem Council. Peter, Barnabas, and Paul did not disparage the Christian Pharisees, nor did they attack the personalities and reputation of the people who first brought up the issue in Antioch. They went right to the heart of the issue and presented the facts that cannot be or could not be disputed. Because in the argument of what is right and wrong and what is the right action to take, even the most outstanding people and the best in their fields can still make mistakes. Regardless of the person or their stature, did they do what was right or not? Remember, in Galatians chapter 2, we're told that Paul rebukes Peter and Barnabas when they were wrong based on the facts of the issue. Being guided by facts is harder than you think when dealing with right and wrong because of feelings. In Tim Harford's article, Facts vs. Feelings, How to Stop Our Emotions Misleading Us, he writes, When it comes to interpreting the world around us, we need to realize that our feelings can trump our expertise. This explains why we buy things we don't need, fall for the wrong kind of romantic partner, or vote for politicians who betray our trust. In particular, it explains why we so often buy into statistical claims that even a moment's thought would tell us cannot be true. Sometimes we want to be fooled. Psychologist Ziva Kunda found this effect in the lab when she showed experimental subjects, an article laying out the evidence that coffee and other sources of caffeine could increase the risk to women of developing breast cysts. Most people found the article pretty convincing, but women who drank a lot of coffee did not. We often find ways to dismiss evidence that we don't like, and the opposite is true. When evidence seems to support our preconceptions, We are less likely to look too closely for flaws. It is not easy to master our emotions while assessing information that matters to us, not least because our emotions can lead us astray in different directions. Now, we don't need to become emotionless processors of numerical information. Just noticing our emotions and taking them into account may often be enough to improve our judgment. Rather than requiring superhuman control of our emotions, we simply need to develop good habits. Ask yourself, how does this information make me feel? Do I feel vindicated or smug? Anxious, angry, or afraid? Am I in denial, scrambling to find a reason to dismiss the claim? Psychologists call this motivated reasoning. Motivated reasoning is sticking through a topic with the aim conscious or unconscious, of reaching a particular kind of conclusion. For example, in a basketball game, we see the fouls committed by the other team while overlooking the fouls on our own side. We are more likely to notice what we want to notice. Experts are not immune to motivated reasoning. Under some circumstances, their expertise can even become a disadvantage. The French satirist Moliere once wrote, A learned fool is more foolish than an ignorant one. And Benjamin Franklin commented, So convenient a thing is it to be a reasonable creature, since it enables us to find or make reason for everything one has a mind to. So, my friends, in determining right and wrong, let us be guided by the facts, because if not, you will fall into motivated reasoning and be swayed by emotions to make the wrong choice, forgetting that sinful people have a tendency to twist the facts and add arguments not connected to the discussion at hand. So look at the facts like a good detective and be discerning. Did he or she do or say it? Was the promise made? Did you borrow money or not? Did they lie or not? Did you talk to the person or not? Did you sin or not? There is no need trying to justify facts. Facts are facts. And notice... The facts weren't presented by just one person, but from at least three reliable sources, Peter, Barnabas, and Paul, all who fact-checked and corroborated each other. Now look with me at verses 13 and 14. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. In verse 13, we see that James, the half-brother of Jesus, the writer of the book of James, and one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, spoke up. He affirmed what Peter said, whom he called Simon. James used Peter's Jewish name to perhaps emphasize that these were Jews laying out the facts for Gentile conversion without the need for Jewish practices. But instead of getting into Peter's credentials as one of Jesus' 12 apostles, or even to focus on his experience with Cornelius. Look what James wisely does in verses 15 to 18. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. James said that the facts presented by Peter are in line with Scripture, specifically the Old Testament prophecy of the prophet Amos in Amos chapter 9, verses 11-12. This prophecy speaks of a future time when in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, He is sitting on the promised Davidic throne, that all people of all nations, both Jew and Gentile, will be able to freely come to Jesus without the need to practice any sort of Jewish customs. James's point in using the Old Testament Scriptures is to show that what is happening in the church at that time, with the inclusion of both Jew and Gentile alike in the church not needing to practice any of the Mosaic laws for salvation, did not contradict or conflict with God's eschatological or future plan for the Gentiles. Verse 18 adds authority to the prophet Amos' inspired words, saying that God's eternality and omniscience prevent him from changing, so he is consistent in all that he wills, including that the salvation plan for Gentiles in the church would be the same as that of the Jews. Salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, plus nothing else. James was saying that if the Scriptures tell us that Gentiles can come directly to God through the Messiah Jesus without any other conditions, then that is how God desires it. From James's argument, we can find our second biblical principle for how to discern what is right and wrong, and that is, number two, to be guided by the Scriptures. Be guided by the Scriptures. We have to remember, my friends, that when it comes to what is right and wrong, it should be defined by what Scripture God's Word tells us or defines for us, and not how we define it, ourselves. James continues in verses 19 to 21. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. James' conclusion in verse 19 was that since the Scriptures so clearly teach salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ, then Gentile Christians do not need to be circumcised or to follow the Mosaic law in order to be saved and to be part of the church body. And he added in verses 20 to 21 that while Gentile and Jewish converts are not beholden to the Mosaic laws, there were three things they should abstain from— which transcends dispensations even beyond the Mosaic laws, and that by abstaining from these things, they will also not stumble unbelieving Jews and Jewish converts. Now, the first thing they were to abstain from was practicing idolatry, specifically participating in idol feasts and banquets, which Paul also addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, have nothing to do with idolatry. The second thing they were to abstain from was sexual immorality, which was prevalent and commonplace in the Roman world to the point that it was somehow acceptable. In fact, this thinking had made its way into some churches where some Gentile Christians thought that sexual immorality was okay as a part of the Roman culture. Paul had to speak about this matter in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and say it was not okay in any circumstance. The third thing they were to abstain from was eating blood or animals that were strangled, which didn't allow for the blood to fully drain out. This prohibition from eating blood was given even before the institution of the Mosaic Law in Genesis chapter 9, which seems to point to this prohibition being in effect even if the entire Mosaic Law does not apply to Christians. However, some would argue that in Genesis, and here even, The prohibition is against specifically eating raw, uncooked blood, but that cooked blood is allowable based on some Jewish interpretations or Jewish targums and therefore certainly allowed now for Christians to eat. But by reminding Gentile Christians to abstain from these three things, as James suggested to the Jerusalem Council, the Gentile Christians would be able to maintain their Christian testimony and not stumble or offend the Jewish people whom verse 21 tells us would hold these things to high regard wherever they were found in the Roman world because the Mosaic laws were universally taught in synagogues. Abstaining from these things would ensure that they would be able to more effectively witness and evangelize to the Jewish community, taking away a barrier to the acceptance of the gospel message, even if Christians who were Jew or Gentile were not under the Mosaic law. Remember that as Christians... While we have the freedom to do many things, we can also choose not to do them because of the principles of liberty and love, so as not to stumble others and present a great testimony to the world as Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8 remind us. Again, in the argument of what is right and wrong, we need to be guided by the Bible, God's Word, which reveals His unchanging standards of holiness and truth. But some may argue in this generation that the Bible should not be the standard of what is right and wrong, that if not, then what should be the standard? I'm reminded of a story of a young woman who once wrote to a newspaper columnist asking for advice saying, I'm a 19-year-old girl who's getting more and more confused about the word morality. Who decides what is morally right? My parents, society, the law? Or should I make the decision myself? The young woman went on to tell how her parents are divorced and that her mother sleeps with a man who is not her husband. Yet her mother does not want her to do the same thing with her boyfriend. The girl signed her letter, puzzled. You know, my friends, there are a lot of thinking people today who are just as puzzled as this college student who asked, who decides what is morally right? My parents, society, the law? Or should I make the decision myself? how would you answer the question? Does every person get to set his or her own standard for morality and does whatever he or she thinks is right? This is moral relativism, which espouses that something that might be right and wrong for you may not be the same for someone else if they don't agree with you. If people get to decide what is right and wrong, we quickly see inconsistencies between their conduct and the rules they lay down. In other words people often say one thing and do another and then adjust their standards to justify their own inconsistencies also this constantly changing standard of what is right and wrong makes it very difficult to live because you never know what is okay or not and quite frankly is highly unfair because the standards applied are different so there must be a standard for what is right and wrong and it cannot be determined by majority opinion nor the cultural norms which are subjective. Since morality comes from God, who is holy, eternal, and unchanging, therefore he gets to decide and to define what is right and wrong. And what he has written in the Bible is not a suggestion for how we are to live, nor do we get to pick and choose what we like. It is the absolute standard by which we determine what is right and wrong, even if we may not like what it says." My friends, let us follow the example of the Jerusalem Council in being guided by Scripture in determining what is right and wrong. I read now verses 22 to 29. Then it pleased the apostles and elders, with the whole church, to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. These verses tell us that the apostles and elders in the church in Jerusalem came to a unanimous spirit-led conclusion regarding this matter, and their action plan was to send a letter to the church in Antioch and to the surrounding region regarding their decision, which was that Gentile converts do not need to practice the Mosaic laws in order to be saved, and that this wrong teaching did not originate from them. And to show the authority and the unanimity of this decision, Silas and Judas Barsabbas would be sent along with Barnabas and Paul to bring a letter from the council to Antioch with these men serving to authenticate it. Notice how these people who were to represent the council are described. In verse 22, they were chosen men who were leading men among the brethren, meaning they were leaders in the church who showed forth spiritual and godly qualities. Verse 25 again reiterates, that these were specially chosen men who would accompany beloved Barnabas and Paul, meaning they also held in high esteem Paul and Barnabas. What we see in these verses, and even in how the letter was written from the apostles, elders, and brethren, is that those who made this decision were godly people of character and integrity. It wasn't made by people with personal biases or agendas but people who sought the Lord in prayer and looked in the Scriptures, people who had enough experience and spiritual maturity in life that they were fit to lead the church, and people who were held in high esteem by others in the church. From these verses, we can find our third biblical principle for how to discern what is right and wrong, and that is to be, number three, guided by godly people. Guided by godly people. You see, when deciding what is the right thing to do, you want to seek the advice and counsel of trusted godly people who have your best interests in mind and who have the courage to tell you the truth even if it may not be what you want to hear. However, listen carefully. This third principle cannot be independent of principles one and two because even the most spiritual people can be wrong because they too are sinners. But when you seek the advice of godly people who are mature in the Christian faith. Their advice will be in line and consistent with the Scriptures. Seeking the advice of godly people removes your own emotional investment and limited perspectives in a given situation, to give you an unbiased and fresh perspective on the matter at hand. Also, when seeking advice for the right thing to do, make sure you ask multiple godly people, because as the Bible tells us specifically in the book of Proverbs, In the counsel of many, there is safety and wisdom. The perspectives of many help us better discern what is right or the right course of action so that one person's biased opinions can be easily weeded out. In fact, this monumental theological decision was arrived through the consensus decision of many godly and spiritual men. And that's why throughout the Scriptures, there are many examples of teams in ministry, multiple people in leadership, and the need for multiple witnesses when enacting a decision of discipline. But as we seek discernment for what is right and wrong through the counsel of godly people, let us remember that we are also seeking their advice and not their agreement. That's what a lot of people do when they seek advice from spiritual people. They just want one of them to agree with their already made-up mind. They do not go into the process with an open, teachable, humble heart and they just want people who agree with them. And they will shun or disregard people who will disagree with them or know or assume will disagree with them. Leo Sable writes, How often do we do the same thing? We see something we want and begin to justify it to everyone around us to get them to agree with us. We often downplay the negative aspects of acquiring the thing we want and are enthusiastic about all the benefits of having it. When I was 18 years old, I wrecked my first car by driving too fast. I took my dad with me to a dealer in town to look for another car. I wanted something sporty and fast that was going to improve my image. Against my dad's advice, which proved to be spot on, I bought a Camaro Z28 with a few too many miles on it and suffered for it financially and in other ways. We remember in Second Chronicles chapter 10 that Solomon's son Rehoboam chose the advice of his friends over the counsel of the elders in his court, which resulted in the permanent division of his kingdom. Second Chronicles chapter 10, verse 8 tells us, But he, Rehoboam, rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. Notice that Rehoboam didn't decide between the two differing advice. He didn't like what he heard from the elders, so he went to his buddies to ask them what he should do and he got what he wanted to hear someone affirm what he already had decided and wanted to do in his heart. It's like teenagers who tell their parents, but a lot of people agree with me. And when you ask them, who are these people? They tell you, they're my friends. Of course, friends of the same age, with the same life experience, and the same outlook on life, who don't want to offend you, may not give you an unbiased, honest perspective. My friends, Let us all be guided by godly people. I read now verses 30 to 35 of Acts chapter 15. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. In these verses, I want you to notice the result of the decision and the action plan. When they received the decision of the Jerusalem Council from the delegation, they rejoiced over its encouraging decision. They were encouraged and rejoiced. Even though there were some tough reminders to abstain from certain things so as to be a Christ-like witness, it was well-received because of how the decision came about and how it was delivered. In fact, Silas saw the work of the Lord among the Gentile Christians in Antioch and decided to stay on. And so did Paul and Barnabas, continuing the work they'd been doing until they were stymied because of the false teaching that some were advocating. In summary, The outcome edified everyone, meaning it was for everyone's best. Some may not have been happy with the decision, but it was for the best of the church. You see, another guiding principle for discerning right and wrong is number four, be guided by edifying outcomes. Be guided by edifying outcomes. I'm not saying that everyone will always be happy with doing the right thing or will be excited with what God defines as right or wrong. But the point is God's standard of right and doing the right thing in His eyes will always lead to an edifying outcome which ultimately leads to people and yourself being blessed. Because at the end of the day, as doing right is God's will and God's will always leads to our best, then we will be encouraged, blessed, and edified. My friends, edifying outcomes do not mean the majority will be happy. It just means that it's for the people's best, it's for our best. Because there are times when we think through the implications of doing what is right, we ask ourselves the question, if I decide to do X, what things might happen? If I decide not to do X, what things might happen? How significant are the implications of this decision? But we should be asking, if I do what is right and hold on to my biblical convictions, will it be for the best for God's people? Will God be honored and His people edified? So my friends, when discerning what is right and wrong and doing the right thing, let us, number one, be guided by the facts. Number two, be guided by the scriptures. Number three, be guided by godly people. Number four, be guided by edifying outcomes. May we always do what is right in the eyes of the Lord to bring glory to His name and be a Christ-like witness to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of the Jerusalem Council, who when discussing and deciding on a very important matter, look to the Scriptures, look to the facts, use godly people desired and desire an edifying outcome to bring glory to your name, to arrive at what is truth according to what you say and not what man says. Father, it's so hard in this world because we have biases and perspectives that are clouded help us always to discern clearly through the lenses of Scripture, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, to live our lives in such a way that it is holy and pleasing because we live rightly. May our lives be a testimony to the world, and most of all, may you be pleased with the way we live our lives rightly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.